It's poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. Fixing the country is not just the preserve of government, civil society and business. It's a complicated process involving people from all walks of life. As we continue with this series, we've also in the past reached out to the religious community. We've spoken to ordinary South Africans who are just rolling up their sleeves. And in this edition, we're going to talk to someone who is immersed in the world of arts. Welcome to another Fix SA podcast here on MoneyWeb. I'm Jeremy Maggs. And in just a moment, I'm going to introduce you to Mike van Gran. He's an award-winning playwright. And as we speak today, he'll tell us that uh, a few days ago, he was deep in KwaZulu-Natal working working on a project that I imagine is using performance to engender some form of community cohesion. And when we have that cohesion, I guess it goes a long way to fixing the problems that we have. And indulge me for a moment. It was Pablo Picasso who said, art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life. Look, I'm no expert, but I think the quote emphasizes the personal and transformative power of art But the broader interpretation might suggest that art can cleanse, refresh, and even rejuvenate society. It will provide new perspectives and understandings. And again, back to the premise of the podcast, it could help fix things. I guess it implies that art has the potential to heal, to inspire, and bring about positive change in society. And so with that uh, rather pompous introduction this time, Mike von Kran, a very warm welcome to you. And before we get on to how art and performance can fix South Africa, tell us what you've been doing in KwaZulu-Natal and how maybe what you've been involved in is helping mend things. First of all, thank you very much for hosting me and for inviting me to be part of Fix SA, such an important program that you are hosting. So we are still in KwaZulu-Natal and we are doing a show called My Fellow South Africans. Um, it's a piece that we began in early May at Artscape in Cape Town. And this is probably the fourth province that we are getting to. The performer last night performed her 69th show in someone's home. And it's a piece that we initiated in anticipation of the elections next year. It's a very provocative piece of satire that speaks to a range of themes that we believe we as South Africans need to be debating and talking about in anticipation of next year's elections. We are trying to prick people's bubbles. We are trying to get people to think of themselves as active citizens, that the country we all know as citizens of this country that have been here for the last 30 years, the dreams that we had 30 years ago have not been realized. The ruling party is largely responsible for this. The elections next year offer us an opportunity to change the course, the trajectory of our country. So. We are, as a very modest kind of contribution to what happens in 2024, doing this piece as a way of catalyzing debate, getting people to think. And so we are taking it to a range of different venues, from formal theater spaces to festivals, the usual kind of places where theater is done, to retirement villages, to schools, to, as I said, people's homes. So in order for us to not just 
have a, a show that people pay money to see, but actually then to engage in debate and discussion afterwards. So that's what we've been doing in four other provinces and what we are doing in KwaZulu-Natal as well. And Mike, leading on from that, why do you think we have lost the ability to become engaged and active citizens. If you look back 20, 30 years ago, the momentum was really there. The energy, the anger, it seems to have dissipated. I think you're absolutely right. And it's one of the things that makes me tear what little hair I have <laughs> left out. Um, and particularly within the, the arts and culture community that I think, you know, has historically played a role in helping to conscientize our society, helping to um, reflect what is happening in our society back to people in the same way that we look into a mirror in order to make us look better. And I think that largely people have become disillusioned, people have become cynical, people have become, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do any longer. And and I think people have retreated either into bubbles and they live in parallel to what the reality for the majority of people is because they're able to afford it. And I'm part of that particular class of people. We have resources. We are able to buy private education, private health care, private security, for goodness sake. And so we are able to live in the same bubble that many people lived in, you know, during the days of apartheid. Um, and now it's just no longer, I think I was in a, you know, the, the place that we did it in last night was in one of the wealthiest parts of Durban. And people there kind of conceded that they live in this bubble where they don't have to engage with the realities of the country because they have the resources to be able to live these parallel lives. And I think that to some extent that's what what, what has happened. But I think that also for many people who have been activists, who were anti-apartheid kind of strugglistas, as it were, they become disillusioned. Many of them have left the country. Many of them are maybe moving to small towns to go and see if they can make a difference there. People have become disillusioned with a political party that no longer recognizes value in what people have in terms of knowledge and skills and expertise and even commitment and passion to this country. They you know, value things like cadreship and political kind of genuflection a whole lot more, mm. which means nothing in terms of really changing people's lives. And if we continue to live in this bubble, I imagine that we will pay less attention to what really matters. And the consequence of that is that the country will become more and more broken. I think so. And one of the things which I'm trying to do with this piece of theatre and the work that I do is to say to people, you're absolutely right. You can continue to live in your bubble. You can continue to live in this parallel universe. But ultimately, we are connected. We do live in the same society. And the reason why you in your very wealthy suburb are having to put up high walls and have electric fences and be linked to an armed security company is because there are so many other people in our society who don't have a stake in our society. They don't have jobs. 
They don't have any hope about their future. They don't have, um, you know, the education that is going to give them the ability to get a decent job that will provide them with this, them and this, their families with a sustainable income. What people are wanting, the majority of people, is very simple, actually. It's very basic. People want a decent education. They want to have decent and accessible health care. They want their children to be able to have a job. They want security from criminals. You know, these are things that we all want. Mm. So I think it's in our collective interest to change our society for the better. Because if we are going to stay in South Africa, if we are going to make lives for ourselves and our children here, then we need to make sure that it is a good society, a great place for as many people as possible so that our interests and our futures are not threatened by those who feel desperate and that they have nothing to lose. So let's bring the argument then to your area of passion and expertise. You've laid the groundwork. How then can art and theatre create platforms for discussion around social justice and change? So in the way that I've just described by going around and doing the work that we are doing and then engaging people in discussion afterwards. Can I just say before I continue, Jeremy, there is a kind of sense that we sometimes get from politicians who provide money for the arts and for sport as well, that, you know, they say these things must be used for social cohesion purposes. And while at some level that is possible, we, I, I really despair at that because some of the things that cause us to be a divided society are deeply fundamental, deeply systemic problems that the arts and sports people simply do not have the resources or the wherewithal to be able to fix. These are things that society, governments, the corporate sector, agencies that have resources, you know, have not been able to fix over 30 years. So to expect the arts of sport to simply, you know, somehow magically wave a magic wand and here's social cohesion, is just not possible. What we do might be temporary. So our cricket team beats Australia at Centurion Park or the Springboks win the World Cup and we have three days of rainbow nationalism where we all feel incredibly good about our country. But once we leave the stadiums, we go back to our apartheid geographies. We go back to the lives that of misery that, you know, more than 50% of our people have to live because they live below the poverty line, because they don't have jobs, because of all of those things. So those are the fissures within our society that need to be addressed. We as artists, as sports people can provide some kind of temporary respite in a way. We cannot fix the fundamental issues. If you look at what needs to be fixed as being fundamental and structural on the one hand, on, on the other, re- that relational and symbolic, we operate in the relational and symbolic area. We My, don't really you, operate in the systemic you don't area. Think, you don't think you're being a little hard on yourself? That temporary relief or <laughs> euphoria that you talk about, surely that is important. We, 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 we need that in order just to... Uh, to keep moving sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I'm, I'm not putting that down. I think that what I'm saying is that, you know, when the Department of Sport, Arts and Culture that has a whole kind of social cohesion unit um, puts money into this, the expectation and the pressure that is placed on the arts community is somehow to do what government itself has not been able to do. 
And in fact, in this, in in the piece that we have, my fellow South Africans, there's one sketch. It's a multi-sketch piece, and there's one sketch that looks at the sports fan roller coaster, and it's about you know the sports fan in South Africa getting onto this roller coaster, and it's about how we feel good about being in South Africa because of these temporary kind of respites that we have. We know when Banyana Banyana does really well, when the Springboks win, we all see us, see us, see us. The ANC can steal, says the actor. Um, you know, Helen Ziller can tweet. Taxis can cut in front of us. We don't care because we are the rainbow nation. And, and, it, and those things are important. I think it's incredibly important to have those moments. But we cannot be naive about the temporary nature of these and that they, we shouldn't allow them to gloss over the much more fundamental work that needs to be done. We as arts people need to be working in concert with other sectors of our society to help to address the systemic and fundamental fissures in our society. But we cannot be expected because of the role that we play in creating those kind of temporary rainbow nation moments be thought to be the magicians that can bring about the social cohesion that our fundamentally divided society still you know, reflects. So who should you be working with in that respect and how do you find each other? So, you know, I think that there are many civil society organizations who are trying to address some of these kinds of issues. And But fundamentally, a lot of what we are experiencing in our country today is because the ruling party, our government, has simply failed to give the majority of people the fundamental promise that they made in 1994, which was to give a better life for all. What our script kind of says, in fact, what has happened is that instead of a better life for all, has become a bitter life for all. All of us now experience electricity, kind of blackouts. We all experience violent crime before it is to be something which primarily played itself out in, in the townships. You know, people who live in townships are the primary victims of crime. Now, everybody, you know, kind of experiences it. And I think that um, what is this is this is why for us it is so important that we need to be addressing the elections next year. Not that the elections are the be all and end all of change in our country, as we know, but we cannot, we simply cannot, in my view, continue to afford to have a ruling party for whom the party comes first before the needs and interests of the majority of citizens of this country. So. As arts people, as sports people, we need to be working with anyone and everyone who is serious about changing the lives of the majority of people for the better. Do you think there's a willingness from those people, whether it be civil society, whether it be business, to actually reach out and embrace your type of thinking more readily? Uh, or will you always simply be either shunted to the margins on the one side or seen as that uh, quick fix panacea, which you've already told me is, uh, is simply unfair? Yeah. So here's the interesting thing. We've been doing this piece for a whole range of different audiences. We were invited by the leaders of various NGOs in Cape Town to come and do the piece for them. And 
as a consequence, they've then invited people to come and see the piece at joining the Artscape Run. We've just done one of the organizations that we presented the play to two days ago was an organization that's fundamentally concerned with ecological justice. So we do a lot of work with ecological societies with NGOs that are deeply in, embedded in land issues and the like. And those are the ones that, that we are seeking to work with. So I think that people don't necessarily understand the arts and, and, and its potential and, and how we work and the economics around it. And people sometimes see artists and the arts as being, you know, this luxury, this hobby, this thing that people kind of indulge in during their spare time. And it's probably because of the way that people are brought up in terms of the understanding of the arts. But I think it's also that we, as people within the arts and culture sector, we do a very bad job of selling what it is that we do and how it is that we can do. And I think that because historically the arts sector has been so marginalized within our society through lack of resources, through lack of prioritization in policy, we have this kind of victim mentality. And so we tend to hang out on the fringes and, you know, hide ourselves under a bushel or we, we tend to just try to concentrate on how do we make sure that we are able to pay the rent at the end of the month and you know pay the school fees and whatever so so we become a silo as opposed to and i think this is what is really necessary for us to change our society we need to be working so much more together across social movements across different sectors of our society we as arts people need to be much more integrated into um, processes and strategies that have to do with changing people's lives in our society and that's certainly where I'm located as a former kind of anti-apartheid activist, but, you know, someone who's trying to use whatever creativity and experience and networks and skills it has now to make a difference in people's lives and to our society. And you've seen the benefit of that in the past. This country does have a rich and enviable pedigree when it comes to culture uh, being able to force change. So this is why it is so disappointing that there isn't sufficient kind of attention being paid to this area, precisely because of how the arts played a key role in anti-apartheid struggle, in highlighting the impact of apartheid on human beings. I mean, you know, the market theater, Ethel Fugard, mm. these became international institutions precisely because during the days of apartheid, when all of these international strategies were being put into place to place pressure on the government to change, the disinvestment campaigns, the boycotts, the sanctions, these more humanizing storytelling forms of letting people, educating people through theater. That's how John Carney, that's how Ethel Fugard, that's how some of the institutions became global global icons, Yuma Sekela, Marie Makeba, and the like. And so the fact that, you know, we have a department that is responsible for arts and culture, and yet there's an absolute lack of vision amongst the politicians and the leadership there as to how to use the arts in a way that is much more productive in terms of bringing about change. In fact, I was at a book launch um, two nights ago where Barry Gilder, currently our um, ambassador to Syria, but of an activist and a former exile, ANC exile, was launching a book. And the interlocutor, Ismail Mohammed, asked him precisely this because his book is really a, a, a piece of fiction rooted in, in non-fiction, in actual history, with a whole bunch of 
you know, known people, Willy Cecilia and Wally Sarodi, all people who were cultural activists mentioned within the book, um, the interlocutor asked him, why is it that given that rich history of the arts playing a role in anti-apartheid struggle, that there's been such a lack of attention on the part of the current leadership of the ruling party to this particular area. And Barry shrugged his shoulders and couldn't explain why. And that is a a very sad indictment, uh, Mike, of where we find ourselves right now. Given that so many of us live in the bubble, as you referred to it, and uh, it becomes more and more difficult sometimes for us to leave that bubble, what you're doing is that you're out and about in South Africa and that you are touching ordinary people's lives. Are you sensing, in spite of all the the negativity that everyone is aware of, that there is still a, a willing either majority or minority of people who do want to fix things? You know, this has been a really interesting thing for me, and that is that there are huge numbers of people with incredible goodwill who really want to do something. Of course, I encounter a lot of people who are incredibly cynical. A lot of people have kind of given up. A lot of people who are encouraging their children to leave the country, including activists. And yet I know that there are many other people who are wanting to do something and who are a little bit intimidated by a whole range of things. So they, 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 they want to do something, but people are saying to them, that's just useless, or they're part of social media and they feel pressure not to do good. So one of the things around which I'm actually doing, and maybe at some point I'll come and talk to you about this on your program as well, I'm in the process of developing a toolkit on how to make a difference. And it's almost like um, what I'm trying to do with it is to come up with a thousand and one ideas as to what people can do depending on where they would like to fit in. So basically to give people ideas as to how they can make a difference depending on their level of resources, their level of commitment, and so on. So not to say to people that the only way in which you can become involved in change in this country is to do this, but actually to give people a range of ideas and say, you know, if we want to look at the major sectors of our society in terms of where change needs to happen, so in education, in security, in housing, and whatever, and then offer within each of those categories, these are ways in which you as an individual, you as a family, you as a community, you as a church, a faith institution, whatever, can make a difference within our society generally, both to systemic change, but also in the lives of ordinary individual Mm. people. So, In a way, what I'm trying to do is, on the one hand, with a creative work like My Fellow South Africans, another work that we're doing, also doing another show called He Had It Coming, which is all about gender-based violence and the scourge of GBV in our country, to raising consciousness about that as well. And then in alliance with this toolkit, which will constantly be in the sh- in, in the form of um, being updated with new ideas as people kind of feed those ideas into it to let people have ways in which they can interact and interface with our society and make the contribution to bring it about a more just, a more equitable, a more humane society. So let me throw your idea right back at you, Mike. Um, what would be in your toolkit as a starting point? What would be in my toolkit as a starting point? So, so 
Uh, you know, there are things that that many people have done, and, and we've done this as well. And that is, we all start off with the people in our immediate circles, right? So many of us have people who work within our homes. How can you ensure that, you know, their progeny simply do not perpetuate the poverty that their parents have experienced so that they are now having to work in our homes? So can we make a difference to the children of our domestic workers, the gardeners, the person who works and cleans in our home? Can we send them to a decent school? Can we pay for their tertiary education? We know, for example, that tertiary education is... one of the best guarantees of people being able to find a decent, sustainable job with a decent income. Can we then change the trajectory of a family by putting through university someone from such a family who then is able to make sure that that family doesn't have to perpetuate the cycle of poverty that they have been accustomed to for generations? So that's, that's one idea. It's almost a riff on the starfish theme, isn't it? If you can help one person, um, that's going to make a difference. And if lots of people are doing it, uh, you'll make a bigger difference. Absolutely. That's exactly right. So I've got two questions left in this conversation, Mike. And one is, a, is, a, is a, they're two standard questions. I always ask people where they derive their optimism from. And you've been very honest. You've been open. Uh, and I do sense uh, 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 anger from you in, in certain instances <laughs> and a little bit of desperation sometimes. But I'm also sensing <laughs> that as a, as, a, as a committed South African, you do have a degree of optimism. Um, am I right or have I misread this conversation? Completely. <laughs> well, um, it is an interesting question. It's something which I'm often asked about. And in fact, last year in August, I hosted a mini festival of four of my plays, and it was called the Home Hope and Humor Festival. And it was a festival in which I was trying to explore this idea of optimism. And we opened it with a conversation between Mark Haywood, whom you would know as a social justice activist, and myself, talking about hope. Where does hope come from for many of us within our society? Where does, where, does, where does optimism come from? And in a way, it really does depend on which day of the week it is in some ways. But I've come to almost accept a particular paradox, which I came across when I was a student of drama, and I learned it from Brecht, who in turn had taken it from some other political philosopher, that in a way we are called to dwell within this paradox of the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. So with our minds and our ability to read and experience, we are able to analyze and see that, you know, the world and our society is pretty messed up. And so that's a cause for for pessimism. And that's where the pessimism of the intellect comes from. But because we are alive, because we are human, because we are in relationships with other people and with the earth and with our general society, the very act of being alive is an act of optimism. And so we are constantly struggling to make our lives and our lives in relation to others better. But we dwell within this paradox as educated, intellectual, emotional, psychological beings Mm -hmm. that we are caught within the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. And it's neither the one or the other, and it's not this binary between the two. It's about 
both at the same time. And sometimes we're going to be a little more disillusioned and other times both of them are going to contribute towards us trying to make a real difference. And I think that I'm pragmatic rather than optimistic or pessimistic, pragmatic knowing that there are going to be times when I'm going to be really disillusioned and there are going to be other times that I'm going mm. to be completely enthused because of, um, you know, what other people are doing and what I see is, is happening as, as a matter of change. And Mike, if you weren't a playwright, I would say that is an excellent answer from an economist uh, because that's, <laughs> that's exactly how they would answer it. Here's the final question for you, and it's one I ask every single guest. And uh, as you and I have enjoyed this conversation, uh, I'm not going to say that we're two old men, but we're certainly two men in our in our middle aged, and we all know that the future of this country, given the age demographic, belongs to young people. So, in twenty mm-hmm. years' time, um, if you're talking to a young person, what will you tell them about the early twenty twenties and the role that they have in building uh, South Africa? hopefully a South Africa that we have left them in some degree of, 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 of repair. What, what is their role as the so-called baton-holding generation? <sighs> you know, that is such a tough question mm. because I have two sons. Um, they're both in their 20s. Um, the elder one was born about 10 days before I, I voted for the first time. Um on this on the 27th of april 1994 um adam the second one was born three and a half years later their whole life experience has been one of the new south africa living under anc rule those of us from our generation who were actively engaged in anti-apartheid struggle we part of the motivation was that we were doing this for our children, we were changing our society because we didn't want them to inhabit a society that we had inhabited with all of its injustices, with all of its divisions and the like. Now my sons are in their 20s and I am encouraging them to go and live abroad. My eldest son is in Amsterdam at the moment not because of his own volition. I mean, he's in a relationship and his partner, she is studying at a university, so he's gone over there to be with her for a year at least. My younger son is still in Cape Town and he's working there and he's very happy there as well. But, you know, both of them, they they love the country, they love the people, they love being here. But in a way, you know, where our society is now is not by any stretch of the imagination the society that we wanted our children to inhabit. I'm not sure that this is necessarily their burden or a burden that we should place upon them. Um, you know, so I'm not sure whose burden it is, but, but um, you know, I, as I would imagine any parent, would want their children to have the best life. And so what we do as parents is we try to create the best conditions for them to acquire the skills, the knowledge, the education, the resources they need to live lives that are fulfilled, that are safe, that and you know, that's that's a big thing for me as a parent in the society. I want my boys to be safe. I want them to live happy, fulfilled lives. Um I 
don't want to be worried about them, about whether they're going to come home at night, whether, you know, um, so, so the fact that they may be living in Amsterdam or might be spending time in Berlin, that makes me feel a lot better as a parent than to sometimes have them go to a gig in observatory where, as my elder son has been, mugged four times, you know. So so it's a very difficult question, Jeremy. Um, but for as long as I'm here, I guess I'm going to try to make this a better place so that wherever my children are, they will feel like they can come back here and, and enjoy this country and make a contribution to the country with the skills and the expertise and the knowledge and the networks and so on that they would have acquired elsewhere. Mike Van Khan, I'm going to thank you for a very honest and fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.